What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead on The Exchange. Despite the strong headline number, the labor market is slowing. But is it slowing fast enough for the Fed? No, says one of my guests. They say don't bank on a rate pause ahead because of it. That said, the regional banks are rebounding strongly today. We'll look at why and if it's really sustainable. And speaking of the banks, our market guest says there's one trade you should definitely avoid right now, and it's names with exposure to San Francisco, which she says is starting to look like Detroit. We've got those details. Plus a special edition of Earnings Exchange, three kind of under-the-radar companies run by three CEOs who are all joining us next week. We will get the trader's take on them ahead of that. First, let's get to Dom Chu, though. Very different market today, Very Dom. different, and in fact, so much so that we've clawed back all the losses from the last two days wow. in terms of the S&P 500. Kelly, so to that point, let's give you some of the stats and numbers around it. Right now, I can tell you the Dow Industrials tilting. Again, the market's overall tilting towards the highs of the session. The Dow's up 420 points, north of one and a quarter percent. One and a half percent gains for the S&P 500, 41.22, so back above that 41 level. And again, right near session highs. We were up 65 handles at the top so far intraday and up about 23, so generally a positive day, but tilting towards the upper end of that trading range intraday. The Nasdaq Composite up 222 points, nearly a 2% gain there, 12189 That technology trade driven a lot by Apple and its earnings, really helping to kind of power that safety view for some folks that with technology, it really is about that rebound and, of course, the safety element as well. Another place to watch on the heels of that jobs number out this morning that Kelly mentioned was the idea that we could see a little bit more inflationary pressure because the economy is actually doing relatively okay. It's not going gangbusters by any means, but crude oil prices, U.S. benchmark, West Texas Intermediate, Back above 70 bucks, 71.44 the last trade, up four and a quarter percent. But as you can see here over the last year, shaving off a third of its value. So this is a little blip higher, but it really is just a blip over a longer term downtrend. Still, watch that crude oil trade. And then Kelly mentioned the rough week overall for the regional banks. And I want to show you just how rough it was for certain of the West Coast-centric Western U.S. regional banks that have been closer to the epicenter of the Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic collapses. We're talking about PacWest, which over the last week is down 44 percent. Western Alliance over the last week down 28 percent. And Zion's Bank Corp out in Utah, not directly kind of tied to the turmoil there, but a real ripple effect, at least casualty there, off about 13 percent over the last week. And Kelly, I will point out that if you look at PacWest, since over the last 12 months, it's lost about 68 oh, percent of oh, 86 percent of its value, 60 some percent of value lost at Western Alliance and about 58 percent of its value lost in Zion's just in one year. So wow. by no means is the banking turmoil over, but hopefully for some it's stabilizing. Back yeah. over to you. Dom, thank you very much, our Dom Chu. Now to the April jobs report, which 
in my opinion, came in way better than expected, especially in certain areas. Non-farm payrolls up by 253,000 overall. The unemployment rate sliding to 3.4 percent, back to that lowest level since 1969. Average hourly earnings more than expected, up half a percent. So if good news like this is supposed to keep the Fed in tightening mode, well, why are the banks taking it so well today? Let's ask Diane Swank. She's chief economist at KPMG and CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman is here with me on set. Welcome to you both. Diane, let me just start with your reaction to the job support. Is it almost too good to be believable? Or do you think there's genuine, you know, I mean, and the importance of the unemployment rate? I mean, we're not going to have a recession until that thing really starts to rise. And here it is dropping again. Exactly. And I think one of the things that's so important is that 3.4 percent unemployment rate. We've been running below what the Fed considers the non-inflationary rate of unemployment for 15 months consecutively now. That's the longest streak since 1969 when we actually saw inflation become much more entrenched and set the stage for the stagflation that we got into in the 1970s. So this is something of concern for the Fed. That said, this number alone does not push the Fed to raise rates yet again. They're going to take into account the tightening that's in the pipeline in the banking sector, which is still an unknown. And we also saw continued stress, as you've already noted this week, in the banking sector. And I think that's important. There also is a lot of data to come out between now and the next six weeks and the next Fed meeting. Right. So, Steve, same question. Not that you're, a, you know, our, our resident banks trader or anything like that, but I'm just trying to run through the line of reasoning here. So if the if this report today means, OK, at the margin, maybe the Fed's tighter than we thought yesterday, shouldn't that be bad news for all the regional banks? And yet they're rebounding strongly. And so is the whole market. Yeah, I mean, I I like what Dom said, which is that, yeah, they're stable, but they're down so much. Somebody's going to pick and find some value. I actually remember um, the savings and loan crisis. In the couple years after, the banks were some of the best performers. Wow. There was a period of time where they had really lost almost a lot of their value, and they came back, and it was a really good play to play the regional banks at some point. And, and, and that point, I think, is when somebody can explain the business model, which is exactly. really, I mean, you can blame the shorts all you want, but the only reason the shorts have all this power is because of an absence of longs. <laughs> and the absence of longs, and I know that's a tautology in and of itself, but the point is that the absence of longs is an absence of being able to say, you know, pound the table, buy this stock. You can say maybe there's some value, but you can't say it's a screaming buy. Do you understand how much deposits are going to fall? I mean, the whole story, Kelly, is why I have to stick around till 4.15 today and report on the H-8 because yes. it's a big story how much deposits are fleeing the system. And, and I'll tell you, it's, it's a win-win for me getting to, to do the story because if there's no change, that's a story. There's stability. If there's positive change, a story. If there's negative change, it doesn't really matter. It's a story either way. So, so there, there's, there's a little stability in the banks. That's good. Um, I will say, though, one thing I just want to throw at Diane, if I can. Diane, the direction of jobs are, are, is often in the direction of revisions. Revisions were point. negative. And they don't have my chart because the system's right. down. Great I'm going to get mad at somebody. But, but we do have the chart. You have my chart showing the revisions. Thanks, guys. It was the three-month average had been, look at that. They're so good. The back there. Had been 334,000. It's now 100,000 less. So you are getting the cooling, yes. not at the pace that you want. And the revisions tell me that maybe it could be cooling faster. And this 253 may be a bit of a head fake. What do you think about that? 
Well, and to really emphasize that point, I think it's very important, Steve. The revisions for March was the lowest March since December of 2020 when we actually saw employment contract. Hmm. So the revisions are finally tipping in the different direction. We had the longest string of upward revisions until about February, and mm-hmm. then they moved back down again in the last two months. And I think this is really important because it means that we could be at a tipping point where we're now overshooting the initial report on job gains rather than catching up, and we could be seeing much weaker going forward. That said, it's not going to change the unemployment rate no matter how we revise the data, and that's the issue for the Fed. I think, you know, Chairman Powell did express some hope that we could still get a soft landing out there. That is not where much of the Fed is and certainly not where the Fed staff is, which is still forecasting a mild recession, as he confirmed. And I think it's very hard to derail the underlying inflation without an increase in unemployment, more slack in the overall Economy. It also feels like we're in a little bit of this, um, whatever term you used earlier, Steve, this, this tautology. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but every time we see rates go up on the prospect of a little bit brighter data, well, what was all the newsroom chatter? Hey, did you see what you can get on a six-month bill? It's, you know, still over 5%, right? It drains right. deposits right. out of the system, ironically, because of, you know, a stronger Fed. So I just think it's worth pointing out that even when things look all clear, uh, you know, under the surface, it could be worsening some of those H8 issues you referred to. Yeah, I mean, that's all true. At the same time, I can wake up one morning and think, you know what, this recession thing, I've been sitting there waiting for recession like I'm waiting for Godot (laughs) over here, you know, Um, and it hasn't happened. And I went back and looked at our Fed survey. According to my very wonderful panel of people who among them is Diane, we were supposed to have a recession by June. Now they pushed it out of September and and it was supposed to be a negative quarter and it doesn't happen. I have become humbled in my understanding of the dynamics anymore. And I think if you are not in that place, you're not paying attention. There's stuff going on in the economy that we've never seen before. Five and a half or five and an eighth on the Fed and the 500 base point increase in the funds rate should stop this economy yes. like a rock. It hasn't happened. It hasn't affected the jobs market, at least not yet. Quick final comment on that, Diane. One of the points Dave Zervos makes, and we've uh, have all been humbled by this experience, but is that is the what I just referred to, the 5% on the bill. Is this actually a massive consumer stimulus? People have not gotten a return on their savings in arguably decades. And now after tying up your money in a three month CD, you can get, you know, a significant, almost like a stimulus check back. You know, I don't know if if we should consider that in the condition of household balance sheet being so strong as something to make us try to figure out that reaction function. Well, that reaction function is clearly important because consumers are now seeking returns on their savings, and that is important. It also is a different aging demographic. I would note one other thing, and I agree with Steve. It's humbling. I'm right there with you 100 percent. But just because it hasn't happened and just because we're paranoid doesn't mean everyone's not out to get us from Catch-22. <laughs> um, I think it's still out there. So, you know, it's it's what I'm I, – I, I cannot see – Unfortunately, given how sticky inflation has gotten, that has also been extremely humbling. And the core measures of inflation are still very sticky out there. And the fact that on a quarterly basis, inflation at the core level actually accelerated in the first quarter with the acceleration in consumer spending, that's worrisome for the Fed. That's all there is to it. And it means either they need to go further or we're going to have more tightening. You know, let's pause for just a moment, drill down on one aspect of the jobs report in particular that's worth highlighting. It's becoming more important to companies as well. And it's the share of older workers, both in the workplace and taking jobs. Our Kate Rogers joins us with some details on that. Kate. 
Hey, Kelly, companies like Humana have been recruiting more workers 55 and up since 2018. That demographic now makes up for 20% of its workforce. The goal is to have its workers represent the people it's serving in the healthcare community. Humana says the key in recruiting this set of workers was flexibility, analyzing benefit choices, and finding ways for older workers to connect with colleagues. All those things have contributed to, again, the work-life balance, and the culture within our walls and the ways that, again, older workers can see themselves being here for the long haul. The AARP Foundation has a program called Back to Work 50 Plus that helps mature workers with their resumes and interview process. We spoke to Jackie Jakes Johnson, who used that program to re-enter the workforce after stepping away to care for her mother in 2018. She's now an office manager in Chicago at age 57. Older workers, they bring experience that you don't find in the workplace anymore. They bring dedication, loyalty. So I think that is a lot of what we bring that younger people don't because millennials jump from job to job and we tend not to. The AARP has an employer pledge program being committed to a diverse workforce as well. And the number of companies that have signed it from 2021 to 2022 rather increased by more than 100 percent, Kelly, to now 2,500 companies, including Humana, of course. So companies are really out there looking to recruit these more mature employees to help close the gap and bring more people on. Back over to you. All right. So, Kate, and thank you for that. Diane, do you want to just respond uh, to this phenomenon and the macro significance of it? Well, what's really happening out there is we saw the participation rate among older workers rise until February 2020, then it dropped off a cliff. What we've seen is even those over 55 have fallen since February of 2020. What we've seen come back is the participation rate among prime age workers driven by a record high participation among prime age women. Now, unfortunately, you can't say this too much, but technically by the government statistics, I'm out of my prime because it's 25 (laughs) to 54 year old workers. Um, Don't get into Nikki Haley trouble here, Diane. I know. I know. I I still think I'm in my prime, so I'm fine there. But um, I think it's really important that we've seen prime age women come back. And part of the reason prime age women have come back, even though uh, and actually gone to a new record high, that's great. We're still trailing all of our competitors out there, including those to the north in Canada by over 8 percent in our participation rate. That's sad. And that's unacceptable. Male participation rate is even lower among prime age workers than other competitors around the world. So we still have a long Mm. way to go. But the good news is they're coming back. I'll add one last thing. And I think it's important is the child care crisis is still with us. And those over 55 they're, they're citing that their women are, are com- out of the workforce two times as more likely than men to be caring for someone in the home. Bingo. And they're often caring for younger children mm. to be able to let women work. Kate, I, I love it when the market forces businesses to stop doing stupid things. <laughs> so, for example, exa- <laughs> here's one. A majority of graduate students are going to be women. So businesses have gotten hip to the idea they better make the workforce better place for women if they want to have smart people in their workforce. Here's another thing, which is that the big decline of participation has been among older workers. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that businesses are going to have to figure out how to make the workplace a better place for older folks 
is stopping them from doing something they should have been doing all along, <laughs> which is doing something stupid. How's that? Is that about two for two on that, Kate? <laughs> I think that makes sense, Steve. And the AARP actually surveyed its membership and asked what some of the things that mattered most to this set of workers coming back. Flexibility was key, uh, being appreciated for your skill set. So talking about ageism and not being appreciated necessarily by younger colleagues was something that matters a lot. But that flexibility point, I think, you know, transcends age, right? Everyone's looking for flexibility in this post-pandemic world. And I think a lot of employers are recognizing that. And to build on something that Diane mentioned about caring for someone in the home and workers 55 and up leaving the workforce to do something like that, uh, that's happening with older people in the home as well. So Jackie Jakes Johnson, who we mentioned, she was caring for her mother. So she yeah. had to leave the workforce and then wound up finding this opportunity and had to go back at age 55 and up mm -hmm. because she had to step away to care for her mom. And we have to remember, people are living longer, right? And so that's right. also a factor here as well. I, I talked to somebody who, um, who decided to put more light in the workplace. Light? Light. Oh, for, old, Light so for older folks. <laughs> Give them bigger screens, and that was something. The only problem with all this is a lot, when we did our survey on labor force, where we take people to come back, a lot of people concerned about health. And, sure. and the mm. pandemic spooked some people out yep. and decided not to come back. I'm not sure how you solve no, that you problem. You've just got to get used to this idea when people leave the workforce. You know, get them back in. It doesn't have to become you know, an issue Permanent. down yeah. the road. We'll leave it there, everybody. Thank you so much today. Our Kate Rogers, Diane Swank, and Steve Leesman. Let's get a check on yields now with the big headlines on some of these one-month bills offering more than 5% this week. There we go, 550. Six-month bill also still over 5%. Rick Santelli is live at the SIBO. Rick, uh, will that keep trading deposits out of the banks? Yeah, no, I'll tell you what, there's a lot of dynamics going on, and I think it's kind of a shame. The Fed should have stuck with uh, the fact that rates were transitory. They were correct. But the problem is, when it comes to trading, every trader knows it's about timing. It's about timing. Their timing was wrong. It's all about speed. So let's consider today's average hourly earnings year over year. Last month were 4.2. They got revised to 4.3. Today they're at 4.4, okay? If you look at the chart, you can see that these are moving up. But what's interesting is if you go pre-COVID, pre-COVID, this series began in March of 2007. It was never higher than 3.6%. It's currently at 4.4. That is one of the issues that we need to concentrate on. And the affected short securities, twos, threes, fives, sevens, their yields are all down on the week. The yields that are up on the week are the long duration, 10, 20, 30. So as you look at an intro of two, you see the way yields move. Currently, it's up 13 on the day, but it's down nine on the week. Tens are up three on the week. And the reason this is important, because ultimately, the speed at which inflation comes down and wages moderate has a long timeline. Keep the rate higher for longer. That's what the Fed's going to do. And equities at some point are going to figure it out. Kelly, back to you. All right, Rick. Thank you. Our Rick Santelli. Still ahead, the destruction in commercial real estate being felt, especially in California, so much so that my next guest says San Francisco starting to look a little like Detroit to her. And there's one trade she's definitely steering clear of because of it. Plus, three companies, three unique insights into the consumer. But are the three stocks buys? We'll ask our trader ahead of speaking with the CEOs next week. And as we head to break, here's another look at market strong day across the board here. Uh, those are the companies we'll be speaking with next week here on the exchange. The Dow's up 405, the S&P up 60 to 4122, 2% pop for the Nasdaq and the Russell 2000s, 345 on the 10-year. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. 
The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to the exchange market, staging a rally with the Dow, S&P, NASDAQ, all up for the first time in five sessions, although it still looks like we could close out uh, in the red for the week. Regional banks up big from yesterday's declines. J.P. Morgan upgrading Western Alliance, Zions and Comerica to overweight today. Those stocks up anywhere from 15 to 52 percent. A lot of people digging through to find regional lenders with exposure to commercial real estate in order to minimize that. My next guest says there's one area to avoid the most. For that, we bring in Julie Beal at Kane Anderson Rudnick and a CNBC contributor. Julie, it's good to see you. And, you know, I think we all know the problems with San Francisco, but I think it's also important to talk through kind of the broad stock exposure. Maybe some people aren't aren't fully aware of where the biggest concentrations are. Yeah, I think, you know, we all are aware of certain banks that have exposure to the CRE that's that's in San Francisco, and not all of it is created equal. You know, there are other lenders in California who have done a great job of making sure that the credit underlying is strong, that they're taking very little loan risk. But I think if I think about San Francisco overall, it's been hit with multiple issues that are making it a city really in decline. Part of it was it's just priced out everyone initially during the the boom. And now we're seeing a situation where if you look at any piece of data for San Francisco, be it cell phone usage, vacancies, you see that this is broadly a city in decline. And it will take years for that to reset. So I worry a lot about any lender that has exposure to any commercial real estate in that space. Do they spell it out? I mean, are we to assume that San Francisco lenders have the most exposure or are there some interesting cross-border exposures that we should be aware of? Yeah, for sure. Some of the larger projects were financed by larger banks, and they're probably better able to weather them. But, you know, a lot of the lending that's in the shadow banking sector that occurred after the global financial crisis, when larger financial institutions had to stop doing some of this lending, we have no real visibility into what that looks like. And so my concern is that those are the funds that will get hit first, but that that will trickle across to the rest of the banking system. And the problem is, is we just don't have visibility on that the way that we do for regional banks and global banks. Right. And I think to kind of zoom out, the problem more broadly is trying to figure out what is the worry point for regional banks right now? You know, is it really deposit flight? Is it a question about viability of of the business model going forward? I mean, and you have to answer that before you kind of know what the appropriate policy or if any policy response is needed here. Yeah, I completely agree, right? Because when we think about credit overall, right, all we've been talking about is duration risk, and I understand that. But the thing is, is that we're just coming out of one of the best boom times we've ever had. It just didn't feel like a boom in 2021, right? Because 
We were in our sweats. Some of us were really worried about the pandemic. And so it didn't feel like the economy was firing on all cylinders, but it genuinely was if you look at the economic data going back, not just relative to 2020, but to 2019 as well. And as Howard Marks always says, the worst loans are made in the best of times. Mm -hmm. It is so hard for me to believe that the credit quality made during 2021 is going to be as bright and shiny as we hope it is. I, I really worry about the risks that people took on. Yeah, and it's a great point that you also want to focus maybe on those banks who were especially fast growing in a year like that. Fifth Third this morning just said, you know, they started look at, looking at things last year on the time the gasoline prices peaked and pulling in their horns and that if you're doing it now, it's too late. Here, here's a final $1,000 question to throw at you. So we go, okay, why would anyone own stocks here? I was going to ask that yesterday. Well, today we're up 400 points. The S&P is back to almost year-to-date highs. So what do you tell people? You know, I, I, I believe that it's impossible to time the markets and that, you know, your best bet is to stay invested in the markets and just focus on quality businesses that do well through a cycle. There's no way I'm going to be smart enough to know when to get in, when to get out. There's just too much risk, right? Because chances are you get in at the wrong time, you sell at the wrong time, you buy the wrong thing. It's just better to invest in quality and it's way less stressful too. All right. Give me one name before we go. You know, I really like what's happening in the software space in a company called uh, Aspen Technology. Hmm. This is a business that uh, services oil and gas. And I think it's actually well exposed uh, and well positioned going forward. All right. Short answer to Julie. We really appreciate it today. Actionable, philosophical. Uh, have a great weekend. <laughs> Julie Beal <laughs> joining you, me too. from Kane Anderson Rudnick. Still ahead, shares of Dropbox popping in nearly 8% on earnings today. Analysts bullish on the potential for AI integration. We'll hear from the CEO ahead in Tech Check. And as we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map with Apple on earnings. Chevron, Disney, your biggest gainers today. Intel, Merck, J&J, the only three stocks in the red. We're back after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. We've been up at near session highs pretty much all day long. We're 50 points off that level on the Dow, up 1.3%. 41.25 for the S&P, up 2% on the NASDAQ. And a couple of earnings stories to mention as well. Lyft. How about this one? Tanking 21% despite beating estimates last night. They had dismal second quarter guidance. It marks the first report under new CEO David Risher. He's been focused on cutting costs, laying off 26% of Lyft's total workforce in his first few weeks at the helm. But what an unfortunate contrast with Uber this week. Apple, meanwhile, higher after better than expected earnings and revenues and some very shareholder friendly moves. 4.5% to 173 for Apple today. Dividend hike up 4%. Buyback program goes to $90 billion. Investors love it. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you so much. And here, folks, is your CNBC News update at this hour. Dr. Rochelle Walensky is leaving as director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention at the end of June, a job she has held since President Biden came into office in January 2021. Walensky played a vital role in the administration's pandemic response over the past two years. Not immediately clear on Friday who will take over as director at the CDC. Churchill Downs suspending trainer Safi Joseph Jr. indefinitely days after the sudden death of two of his horses at the track. 
As a result, Lord Miles, who is trained by Joseph, was scratched from tomorrow's Kentucky Derby. The suspension prohibits Joseph or any trainer directly or indirectly employed by him from entering horses in races at all Churchill Downs owned tracks for the time being. And millions of TurboTax customers are set to receive checks as part of a $141 million settlement. Those impacted were low-income consumers eligible for free, federally-supported tax services. But they paid TurboTax to file their federal returns across several tax years due to, quote, deceptive marketing. The amount paid to each eligible consumer ranges from $29 to $85 dollars depending on the number of tax years for which they qualify. Kelly, back over. All right, Tyler, I will see you soon. Tyler Matheson. Coming up, what's next for streaming? Warner Brothers down 10% this week and just reported a much wider than expected loss. On the heels of Paramount's big miss, we'll look at what it all means for the media and streaming landscape next. Shares of Warner Brothers Discovery higher today despite missing on both the top and bottom lines. But the street is cheering news that the company's streaming service will soon be profitable, sooner than I should say than expected. Here's what CEO David Zaslav told the crew on Squawk Box this morning. We made $50 million in EBIT on our streaming business this quarter. We said that the streaming business would be profitable next year. Right. And we're, we announced today that our streaming business will be profitable this year in the U.S., and so uh, our U.S. streaming business is no longer a bleeder, which is a big deal. Well, and compare it with Paramount's big miss yesterday when they cut the dividend, reported greater losses in their streaming division, and those shares tanked. Joining me now to discuss is Matthew Harrigan, senior equity analyst at the Benchmark Company, along with our very own Julia Borson and CNBC.com reporter Alex Sherman. Welcome to everybody. Um, Alex, just kick things off here. I mean, other than saying, you know, how amazing, again, Zaslav is at all of this. I mean, the shares are up 3% after his remarks. What jumps out at you? Right. Keep in mind, Warner Brothers Discovery was down 60% last year. But yeah. uh, look, I, there's, there's no doubt that David Zaslav can take a, a small victory lap today. He's been cutting costs like crazy over the past year to try to get streaming into a profitable, free cash flow pumping business. And this is a legit first step. And so, you know, I think the street kind of is tipping its cap to that to say, OK, but the, the company's going to need to do a lot more than this. And to be fair, David Zaslav said that on the earnings call. You know, he, he admitted that the environment continues to be challenging, and he's hopeful that the company will really turn the corner here and start to get advertising revenue back up, and we'll start to get film revenue back up. Of course, traditional cable revenue, you know, that's probably on, on, on a... On a a slide down yeah. and there's nothing he can do about it. But that's why it's so important to get this streaming business profitable as quickly as he can. And at least we're seeing a first step on that today. Julia, what would you add to that? Why do you think people are giving WBD a little bit more, I don't know what to say, credit than Paramount? Well, look, the results were better. I mean, the revenue was in line. The earnings loss was much bigger than expected. But I do think that it's it's really important here to focus on the progress in streaming and the opportunity ahead in streaming and the fact that David Zaslav spent the first year after he acquired um, or merged these two companies and, and, and combined Discovery with Warner Media. He spent that first year doing meaningful cost cuts. So the results today show that they're on track. They're serious about making streaming, not just about 
gaining as many subs as possible, but making sure that they are profitable. It was notable that on the earnings call, he talked about really using the content to cut down on churn. Hmm. The big risk for all of these streaming companies is there is so much competition right now that they want to make sure you don't just sign up for one, watch your favorite show, and then drop it um, when you're done with your, your favorite series. So what they're really trying to do is think strategically about the combination of the Discovery Plus and the HBO Max assets into this new service, Max, and to use that combination to make sure that people do not drop off yeah. when they when they lose their favorite show or they have to wait for the next season. So I think it's really about being strategic about maintaining the profitability um, of those subscribers. Matthew, why is it when it feels like everybody's trying to be Netflix, that Netflix is the only one you seem to have a sell rating on, if I'm not mistaken? Is that valuation or something more? Hey, I'm a valuation geek, and I haven't been a perm bear on Netflix. I actually upgraded a few years ago, just before they increased prices, and it had a, a nice pop. But you know, clearly, when you look at Warner Brothers Discovery, I think they're very early in the regenerative process here. You know, HBO and was was basically you know mangled as far as its management for quite a number of years on, under AT and T. And you know, Warner Brothers, uh, as it reaches its its centenary. It's just had an awful had an awful period at the box office, and what you're seeing right now is out at CinemaCon. They they have a fantastic movie uh, pipeline this year. You've got the Harry Potter, you know, video game, which has done extraordinarily well. Uh, you're you're getting uh, much more rapid progress at, at HBO and, and the new Max service launching on the 23rd, albeit you know largely through cost control at this point, and that gives you an, a, enough of a buffer against what's still a very difficult advertising market. You know, this company is extremely cash generative, unlike uh, Netflix and some other you know streaming companies. And, and really, this is you, you certainly want to have a lot of creativity. I mean, they're turning around DC Comics under new new management. You know, James Gunn most notably, and, and certainly uh, the animation business as well has a lot of potential. So I, I think this is a, a great you know risk reward here with the amount of free cash flow that's being generative. These very recognizable franchises. And I think some really good growth plans in place that have been uh, you know, somewhat masked by the very necessary uh, effort to cut uh, costs over the last year. Yeah, well, it, it would help explain a couple of reasons there with cash flow, cost cutting, why they're, you know, kind of at least up 3% today, maybe early signs of a turnaround. We'll leave it there. Thank you all so much today. Matthew Harrigan, our Julia Borston, and Alex Sherman. So what will the Oracle himself say about streaming tomorrow? Remember, Berkshire has a 14% stake in Paramount they've accumulated over the past year. But last month, Warren Buffett sounded cautious, telling Becky, we'll see what happens. The Berkshire Shareholders Festival already underway out in Omaha. Let's take a live look at the showroom floor. To hear Buffett's thoughts on streaming and much more, tune in right here to CNBC. Find out our coverage starts tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on TV and on .com. We're back right after this. Welcome back, everybody. How about Dropbox? That's a nice little 8% pop on their beat in second quarter guidance. Dear Jabosa sat down with the CEO. Is it Houston or Houston? Uh, Dear these are the important questions. How, Houston, like the street. Okay. Are the re- is the restaurant Houston's or how- Houston? Anyway, uh, what did he have to say about the quarter, D? So Houston, right? To get that kind of pop, you got to mention AI a few times. That's certainly what he did do, attributing better efficiencies and guidance to artificial intelligence. He also said that it factored into Dropbox's latest layoffs. It was both. So a lot of kind of different factors. So, so first is to be responsive to the macro environment. 
um, like a lot of other companies. But the second is really this surge in demand that we're seeing for AI. And certainly last few months, the interest and demand for um, this new generation of smart products has been skyrocketing. So, Kelly, when layoffs in tech, they really started to gain steam late last year. It was all about cutting costs and rolling back too much hiring during the pandemic. But as Houston suggested, that is starting to shift here. Layoffs are becoming about efficiency and making way for the huge platform shift that is generative AI. Remember earlier this week, we talked about it. IBM said that it would pause or slow hiring to make room for AI roles that could actually replace humans. Houston, though, he has a different approach. Have a listen. No, we're not replacing uh, replacing jobs with AI. Um, we see AI more as giving pe- like our existing people these superpowers that they didn't have before. Is it a mistake to replace people with AI? I think it's a mistake to replace people with AI. Or I think if that's the only motivation, um, I mean, I think we uh, when you can have when you can get more out of or you, when you augment people's capabilities, I think that's a better way to think about it than kind of this zero sum. Um, people versus AI type positioning. Kelly, you hear a similar sentiment from Alphabet when I ask them, the CFO Ruth Port, if they have more layoffs to do. She talks about making the company more efficient with artificial intelligence. So in a weird way, this balance is being struck right now between AI taking actual jobs or improving efficiency. So you just have different kinds of jobs. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm biased towards being pro AI. I think he's right about like giving people what what person says, you know what? No, I'd rather be the call center. Like, let the AI do it. Maybe I can perform a better function. I don't know. The stuff that's replaceable. I don't think people are fighting for that. And some people, some companies are so eager to jump on this AI train that they say they can replace jobs. We don't know yet if that's really the right method, if you still need a human at the wheel. And I think that's what they're trying to figure out. But he was sort of thoughtful and nuanced about it. Yeah, different kinds. Of, and, you know, it's like you say about being so thoughtful and nuanced. You look at these guys, and I'm still used to them being young and, you know, a couple years into their, and now they're gray around the ears, you know? <laughs> Eminence, Greece, what do they say? Deirdre, thanks for bringing that to us. Really appreciate it. Deirdre Bosa today. Still ahead, an upgrade can't stop Portillo's from pairing its gains. Choice Hotels, meanwhile, has missed on revenues in nearly half of its reports over the past five years, while shares of insurance and investment company Primerica are up about 27% this year. How to trade all three is coming up in earnings exchange. Welcome back, everybody. We have a special edition of Earnings Exchange today with the action, the story, and the trade on one name that's reported, two that are on deck. But what all three have in common is that we'll be talking to the CEOs next week. So let's start things off with Portillo's. It's the fast casual sandwich chain. They missed on EPS, reporting a penny loss. But Guggenheim analysts like the shares. Others did, too. They upgraded them to buy today, confident the chain's planned expansion in the Sun Belt will pay off. Shares up 30 percent this year. Not too shabby. Portillo's CEO, Michael Osenlu, will join us on Monday with our trades. Jeff Kilberg is here. He's KKM Financial's founder and CEO and a CNBC contributor. Jeff, welcome. And I mean, I can't imagine you get a lot of requests to talk about Portillo's. Maybe I'm wrong, though. What do you think about the stock so far this year? Well, I am very biased, Kelly. Here I am, a Chicagoan. Oh, I've right. had a couple burgers and a couple hot dogs from Portillo's, and their chocolate cake is absolutely absurd. But what's fascinating about Portillo's, is it's right back where it was, its IPO. And if we really rewind, Kelly, the Oracle, we're going to be talking about the Oracle all weekend here on Omaha, but the Oracle actually bought Portillo's, the namesake, no. back in 2014, and then they spun it out. So here we are with a micro cap name. I know this is a tiny name, but here's an opportunity. Look at the congruent line that Shake Shack took. Shake Shack, when it 
had his IPO. It was about 60, 65 stores. Now it's about 450 stores. So the plan here is to see Portillo's develop into a 600-unit facility. Right now, they're at about 65 units as well. So I'm a buyer here, but I think it'd be considerate that this was trading at $54 just back in November of 2021. So it's had a fall from grace, but this is a tasty opportunity to, to dive into a very, very high beta micro cap. Still a 57 PE. And how do people who are buying it now make sure that they're going to buy a stock that does well over the next couple of years? I mean, kind of Chipotle-esque. What do they have to do to actually be that strong of an investment? They have to execute. I think you bring up a great point. And that's why if you look at Shake Shack and how Shake Shack actually rolled out their plan and execute. So here's Shake Shack at 460 stores. You're going to see a very similar situation with Portillo's. Portillo's is a different offering, though. Everyone loves burgers. Everyone loves Italian beef and sausage here in Chicago. And I think that's going to be widespread across the country. But Portillo's is, has the opportunity to move higher. But this is a volatile stock. So I warn people, be careful when you're coming in here. This is we, the first day it had an IPO, Kelly. It went from $20 up to $30, up to $50. 54, then fell from grace. But I think this makes sense. If the Oracle liked it in 2014, Kelly, you got to like it in 2020. I know. I'm just, their food is such comfort food in a way. You're right. It's delicious. Oh. But I'm like, Chicago January comfort food is very different from Atlanta in February. You know? We'll see if it translates. Let's move along here and talk about our next one, Choice Hotels, the parent company of Comfort and Quality Inns. It's up 15% this year as demand is strong for budget-friendly hotel brands. We'll talk to CEO Pat Patius on Tuesday. Last time, uh, Kilberg, he talked about how infrastructure demand was creating a huge increase in uh, demand at his hotels for people who are working on those projects week to week. So I wonder if that'll still be a theme or is the slowing macro going to start to set in? I don't see the slowing macro. I've been traveling all over the country and I'm continuing to see more and more personal travel as well as business travel pick up. So if you look at Marriott, we talked a little bit about Marriott earlier. From a five-year perspective, Choice Hotels has outperformed. And I know it's one-tenth the size of Marriott. This is a $6 billion market cap company, but I think you can be a buyer here. And you've seen upgrades and downgrades, right? You've seen Morgan Stanley downgrade to 130. You've seen Truist upgrade to 130. So I think it makes sense that this is going to move higher here. But you have to understand, of the 628,000 rooms it owns, and compare or in contrast to Marriott's 1.5 million rooms, about 30% is that brand. So it's a little lower end brand. I'm not afraid to stay in a comfort in Kelly, but nonetheless, I think you're going to see continued robust travel and that's going to put wind in the sails here. I think we'll probably also talk to him about, you know, the income distribution. How are people doing right last June? Interestingly, because gasoline prices were so high, you really saw that pinch the lower uh, distribution of the income spectrum. You fast forward a year. I mean, prices are lower and they're not way down, um, but obviously job growth is slowing too. So it'll be interesting to hear what he says about that dynamic. For sure. And I think you have to really understand it's been an elongated reopening. So when people are talking about where they're going to spend their money in the face of this really high inflation, which, of course, is coming down, they're talking about taking trips. So that's why I think you're going to see the whole hotel industry. So you can own Marriott as well as Choice here. But I think if you look at the opportunity uh, year to date, there's going to be an opportunity for a mean reversion. And that's where Choice Hotels has the ability to go higher. All right. That's two out of three. The last one is Primerica, Jeff, the financial products company. It's also up nearly 30 percent this year. Strong demand for life insurance and investment products. CEO Glenn Williams will be here on Tuesday after they report on Monday night. I mean, you know, right now, so much focus on financials and the way that bonds, I mean, we know insurance has been a strong performer, Um, but talk to me about whether this is a stock that jumps out to you uh, for the rest of the year. 
I think if you own it, you have to hold it here, Kelly, but I would not establish a new position. When you talk about financials, and this is very different, you know, you hear the word regional bank, people get shivers. Mm -hmm. And this has been very insulated from the regional bank, I'm not going to say crisis, but the regional bank chaos. But I think when you look at a name like this, if you have the opportunity it's this close to its 52-week high, maybe you trim, maybe you take a little bit of profits, but I get really nervous about where it is technically at the 50-day moving average, maybe it goes back down to that trading moving average, which is down at 148. But I think it does a very good job. This almost seems like utility the way they continue to make money year after year if you go back and forth, look at that. But I think with the whole financial industry, I think there's other opportunities inside of financials versus something in Primerica, which has done a great job and delivered. So up you know, 25, 30% year to date, I want to take profits or hold to a certain extent, but I can't be a buyer here at this level. Yeah, less than a 12 times. You know, I remember during the pandemic, a lot of life insurers said it was the first time millennials came to them and actually said, wait a minute, do I need life insurance? How does this work, you know? And will they get a, a tail from that? If we can, though, turn back to kind of the regional banks, big banks, Jeff, you go into the weekend, what kind of work are you doing to make these trades money? Do you wish you had caught like a rebound trade like today, or do you think you have to kind of really move to the sidelines until the dust settles here? You know what, selling put spreads in some of these regional banks or in the broad swath ETFs, that makes sense. But I really have been adverse to dive in here because of so much uncertainty. You don't know what the Fed is going to do. We kind of have a broad idea of what they're going to do. But I think you have to stay with quality. So JP Morgan continues to seem be picking up uh, you know pennies uh, before the bulldozer. But I think JP Morgan and some of these bigger banks are going to prevail and win. Does that cause a problem making the bigger banks bigger? Yes. But I think as you're seeing us digest the Fed messaging, you're seeing the 10-year note move lower. I think that's kind of setting the stage for this soft landing. So I think you're going to see financials rebound, but it's not going to be a straight line with these regional banks. But if you have an appetite for risk and you like to trade, right. you can aggressively sell some puts into some of these specific names, which may have mismanaged their treasury book, may have gotten caught with their hand in the cookie jar, but these are still good banks with balance sheets and people want to work with them. Right. I guess to put it differently, are you tempted, right? Because it's not all Often the market offers you the opportunity <laughs> to go, okay, I can be up, you know, 40% in a day, but there's a reason that quote-unquote opportunity is out there. Well, you know, it was a great example when we saw a lot of the SVB hit. What were the nervousness? It trickled into Schwab. Schwab's a great yeah. company. It was down 20% in one day. So we were gobbling up opportunities like that. But if you're looking at some of these regional banks, make sure you understand their model. Make you understand their balance sheet. Make you understand if they make money and also their obligations because there's different risk and quality levels across the regional banks. But that's, that's what creates opportunity, Kelly. Real quick final question. What about the VIX? If there are those who say, I don't know how to play bank by bank, but I'm going to bet on volatility going higher. Is that too obvious of a reaction here? You know, I, I think the VIX has had a hard time kind of predicting short term here. We're seeing more and more inputs trying to understand, but it's the nervousness, it's the anxiety that's been injected in the marketplace. But if we could remove some of this regional bank chaos, so you look at earnings better than expected. You're seeing rates come down. You're seeing the tenure remaining under three and a half, almost at three and a quarter percent. That's helping the consumer. With a strong jobs report, I think I have a little more optimism than I did just a couple of weeks ago. But yes, it is a sentiment play. Yeah. And the more sentiment souring, the more opportunity I think there is for us to break out of this range. The S&P 500 has been tethered to 250 days of trading around 4,000. Right. I think the breakout is to the upside. Okay. Oh, to the upside. Yes. All right. Yes, I think we get above 4,200, and you're going to see some people. FOMO is going to kick in, Kelly. It's always the trade that makes you go, what? That is probably the yes. right trade to do. Thank you so much, no Jeff Kilberg. Have a great weekend. We really appreciate it here. A quick market check before we go. I want to look back at the Dow up 460 points today, but still down for the week, about a percent and a half. The S&P down a percent. The Nasdaq, though, barely lower with tech, the only sector in the green as we look to close things out on this Friday. Coming up next, uh, that does it for us here on The Exchange. 
Exchange, but on Power Lunch, we've got the CEO of Dairy Queen live from the, I promise I didn't personally request this, but I don't hate it either. The Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting in Omaha is underway. The festival begins, Tyler's getting ready. They should have sent us some blizzards. Uh, I'll join him on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 